Hello everyone, welcome to Word with Dave Clay. I am not a musician. <laughs> I do like music and I, I like to sing, but it does not make me a singer either. And I certainly can't play an instrument <laughs> to any great extent of accomplishment. Uh, but I love the idea. <laughs> And again, I guess in that way, I truly enjoy music. Uh, syncopation. In music, syncopation is a variety of rhythms played together to make a piece of music, making part or all of a tune or piece of music offbeat. More simply, syncopation is a disturbance or interruption of the regular flow of rhythm, a placement of rhythmic stresses or accents where they wouldn't normally occur. Now, for, mu <laughs> for music, syncopation, then, is probably not a bad thing. You know, you change the rhythm, you change the movement. Kind of amazing how it all rightly fits together. And certainly those that are much more accomplished at not only playing instruments, not only then singing, but also writing music and understanding all that goes into that, either play by ear or maybe a bit more formal study, they probably appreciate that quite a bit. Now, today's <laughs> I might not be a musician, I am a clinical counselor. I do psychological counseling, counseling, and I also read Psychology Today. And in the March-April 2023 edition, Alexander Danvers, PhD, who is a social psychologist with an interdisciplinary approach to research, has written an article that I think is certainly worthy of consideration and thus the podcast. How an infant's heart influences their mother's depression. An infant's temperament, gauged by setting their heart rate, can have a profound effect on their mother's postpartum depression. A connection that's crucial, crucial for others to understand. Although a new birth often brings joy... As many as one in seven new mothers will experience postpartum depression in the year after their baby is born, typically lasting three to six months, but sometimes leading to chronic or recurring depression. Baby them, babies themselves have distinct temperaments, and some express more negative emotions and have a harder time self-soothing. Self Babies with less regulated temperaments can actually change how their mothers feel about themselves as parents with significant downstream consequences. Recent research explores the underlying physiological basis of this effect. According to decades of research, patterns of heart rate variability are related to our ability to regulate emotions. That is a tendency to flexibly adapt to stress and deal with your own feelings is reflected in the patterning of your heartbeats over time. One of the most widely used methods of estimating heart rate variability is to measure respiratory sinus arrhythmia, RSA. 
This measure tries to isolate the activity of the parasympathetic rest and digest system as it influences the heart. Previous research found that infants with lower RSA displayed more negativity and reacted more to new situations, suggesting the RSA may be a basic physiological indicator of poor infant self-regulation. In a recent study by Jennifer Somers of Arizona State University and colleagues, the researchers followed mothers for three years after the birth of their children to gauge how maternal postpartum depression and poor infant self-regulation might combine. They found that if mothers were high in postpartum depression and their infants naturally had a hard time regulating themselves, there were severe negative outcomes, including the mothers feeling less confident in their ability to be good parents and having worse depression symptoms three years later. The study suggests that we can think of the mother and infant as influencing each other. If an infant was easy, postpartum depression didn't matter as much. Mothers still felt confident in their ability to parent and didn't end up with higher levels of depression. On the other hand, if the infant was more reactive and less able to soothe itself, then postpartum depression did matter. With infants who are naturally more difficult, Mothers with more symptoms of depression end up, ended up feeling less confident and their symptoms endured longer than did those of other mothers. Both the mother's state of mind after birth and the infant's particular physiology contribute to the way the mother feels throughout the child's early years. Many parents worry whether they are doing enough to make sure their children are healthy and happy, but a strong bond is only partially under their control. Children are born with their own personalities and differences in physiology, and this can have a real effect on how the relationship unfolds. Infants who are fussy might present more challenges, leading to very different experiences for mothers. What might be easy or right for one mother won't work for another, not because of their capacities to parent, but because of the needs and demands of their particular babies. Again, how an infant's heart influences their mother's depression. Alexander Danvers, PhD, a social psychologist with an interdisciplinary approach to research, March, April, 2023, Psychology Today. So the good news, it's not all that common in terms of prevalence. The good news, it all starts with the same heartbeat. I don't know that we don't recognize that for the significant period of time the child is developing in their mother's womb, that the heart of the mom is the heart of the child. And to the extent or degree that there must be a certain place of either accomplishment of just that, the development of the organ heart, 
But then upon birth, the function of the heart, independent of their mother, the good news is, up to that point, mom and baby symbiotically, (laughs) not syncopated, symbiotically are one. And that last trimester, again, in a higher prevalence sort of dimension, can be an awesome experience. Yes, it's miserable. Yes, there's that desire to go ahead and have this baby. Yes, there's wear and tear on the body of the mother. But at the same time, though, there is that sort of biochemistry that goes along with not only satiation or contentment within the mom and the baby that all is well. (laughs) Everything is rightly, rhythmically in order until the birth. I, I know we don't, can't really ask anyone especially children, infants, newborns, what that feels like. And the older one gets, the more one might then, in some made-up sort of way, think about what it might feel like and can speculate. And probably, to some extent, there's some accuracy in there. It could be all that pleasant. All of a sudden, you're coming from this really well-protected, warm environment into a world where immediately there is a shock of temperature gradient, there is a shock of all the sensation, there is the experience itself, whether it's an easy birth, difficult birth, there's all sorts of complications. But then again, we don't know. I mean, not only is it maybe not a registered memory or in that sort of way something that somebody could ever, ever, even as they get language, developmental language should be able to report. But who knows? Maybe the biochemistry, maybe the endorphins, maybe all of that. Oxytocin. All of those neurotransmitters that we believe to be in the baby that are fully there biochemically, that are responsible for sort of natural pain remedy or suppression and or with parasympathetic nervous system operation, calming effect, maybe it's all already there and maybe it kicks in. Why do we think it may not, at least not for everyone? Because I do believe this. RSA, the respiratory sinus arrhythmia, which is the most widely used methods, according to the article, of estimating heart rate variability, kind of suggests that some kids come out so to speak, then really their systems aren't doing a very good job of regulating. Maybe it's just, an, again, a natural inclination to have to go through that judgment, adjustment. Some children maybe experience that sooner. Maybe some mothers, or I would even speculate, it could have something to do with the mom. If the mom is an anxious person, there's plenty of excess norepinephrine adrenaline in their system, sympathetic nervous system, operation, fight or flight kind of stuff going on. Maybe the child's born a bit wired even to that. We know that happens with uh, those mothers that are addicted to drugs and then the babies go through withdrawal. 
So we know that's possible. It crosses the blood-brain barrier. That's a chemical. A drug is. Uh, but so are neurotransmitters. And with that, no drug can have an effect except that there would be a receptor site. And so you could kind of generalize, extrapolate, and say, well, if it's happening with higher prevalence with drug addicted or in that there is a correlation between drug addiction and the mom and then upon birth the child going through drug withdrawal, uh, then maybe the same thing happens with the child from more naturally occurring neurotransmitters. But regardless of what it may be, more environmental or more biological sort of reasons why that whole experience of birth is difficult, there's plenty of room for syncopation uh, in music terms. And I chose that as the analogy uh, to relate to because then it doesn't have to be all bad. It just has to mean, though, if there is, and maybe everyone has a bit of that, maybe the mother's biochemistry immediate to the birth of the child isn't working properly, so she doesn't calm down. <laughs> maybe the endorphins aren't working quite to the same extent or degree. Maybe the oxytocin isn't there. The GABA isn't there. Dopamine, serotonin levels aren't quite all what they should be. Maybe the adjustment then of the birthing process itself on a biochemical basis takes a while for all the hormones and the neurotransmitters that are responsible for the homeostatic kind of perfect calibrated, perfectly calibrated set point to be reestablished. I think that's true too. A lot of postpartum depression probably has to do with that. But needless to say, getting the mother and the child rightly in tune, it's probably not syncopation, but rightly sort of back on rhythm, it makes all the sense in the world. We should be at least aware of that. And maybe we could do some preventative in the truest spirit of primary care, psychological interventions, even before they can talk, which means then we don't need talk therapy at that point. Uh, kind of a joke. Uh, it renders talk therapists out of a job. But it doesn't take much, and even though Alexander Danvers, PhD, is a social psychologist, He's writing about something that's quite biological and physiological in basis and then making those correlations with an interdisciplinary approach to research, which is probably why they put that in there in the liner note, so to speak, so that we know. Yeah, it's all about physiology, but there's a connection and Alexander Danvers, PhD, who is a social psychologist, enjoys it. But maybe looking at it that way, studying it, maybe he's broadened his scope of practice to include newborns or even those before they're born. He is a social psychologist, so I would imagine his the idea of family consolation, the idea of supports, the social connections. We all know that's important. That that time that the mom, the mother, and the child get to spend together immediate to birth is all that important. Maybe that's part of the re restoration of that rhythm uh, maybe as the mom swaddles and cuddles and holds 
the baby's chest to their chest and the whole breastfeeding and all of that, then there is that, <laughs> you can feel their heartbeat. You know, maybe that's part of it too. I, I, I'm not trying to ask a, a lot of open-ended questions I'm, that I'm expecting somebody to come up with an answer. I just want to suggest there's just a lot of questions that are open-ended that we don't have answers to yet, but maybe we need to, as with Alexander Danvers, spend some time thinking about that. But where talk therapy does work is with the mom and where I might, in clinical context, see someone suffering postpartum depression. It's going to be certainly after the birth and I'm probably not going to have the newborn there, but I'm going to be working with a mother who may be somewhat clueless. Maybe not only have we not thought much about this, Maybe there has been those that have thought much. Maybe there's a lot of research. But if that's all true that's been done, we're not hearing it. Maybe we need to talk a bit more about it. Maybe we not only need to educate moms, maybe we need to educate dads too in the importance of that bond, as the article calls it, between mother and child rightly being established. But the good news, again, is it started out one there's birth, that kind of creates two. But the good news is that there should be some natural inclination therein to reestablish that rhythm. And should that be wasted, <laughs> there's no waste in any of that, that's all fabulous stuff. Babies are wonderful, birth is wonderful, the love that goes with the bond is wonderful, the thoughts of all of that, at least to me, the great appeal. Is, it's all wonderful. But maybe we need to, to generalize that a bit more into adult relationships because it's quite possible that it's the same way that we kind of form our social bonds even as adults. We have your heart. We're just connected in some way, spiritually and biochemically, I might add. And though you may not have the kind of proximity to know somebody's heartbeat just being sure <laughs> the RSA the respiratory sinus arrhythmia that speaks a lot that's what the article says since kids can't speak this is how we measure this that speaks a lot to their current emotional state maybe that's why music is so valuable maybe in some ways bilateral kind of stimulation in a psychological technique sort of way can help us to kind of just reset or reestablish. The good news, again, is the homeostatic response is like a thermostat. It's a set point. Your body has one. We presume that it's always inclined as much as we would know it to be to try to bring us back to whatever we think is in some measure of norm. 98.6, the ideal temperature, the ideal emotional state of satiation, the ideal contentment state. Homeostatic response is part of that turn, too. Turns on the sympathetic, parasympathetic nervous systems and right measure uh, core health. It's part of the immunological system, or at least it is co-part with the immunological system autoimmune function. It's really wonderfully calibrated. 
if we can just cooperate with it. And that's where maybe the education comes in. That's where the talk therapy comes in. That's where the advice, should there be any, should come from research, what we know. But there is a social dimension to it. And I talked about adult relationships. Even couples counseling, marital counseling, it's got the same dimension. We just need to translate what's going on in the head, the psychology of it, to turn off the fight or flight, all the animosity, uh, all the fear, all the doubts, the insecurities, at least long enough to allow the hormonal, the neurotransmitters, to become balanced again, and that these two parts can rightly sort of learn to relate to one another. Again, the more complexity is, is that at this point with adulthood, at that point with adulthood, you have to really cooperate. Uh, kids don't fight against you. <laughs> so with infants and postpartum depression and moms, now you can get into a conflict with the dad and the mom because the child could be so fussy, once more as the article put it, or have such a difficult time regulating or whatever the mechanism of regulation is, it wouldn't be a conscious one, once again for the child, infant, newborn, because they're not, their brain's not developed. But even then, maybe we could use this principle to reconnect moms and dads. Maybe then somebody pulling the night shift, singularly alone, maybe it should be more of a joint venture. I know you've got a kind of tag team on that. Work in shifts, uh, cooperate, coordinate that. That's the word. But spending time holding each other, mom and dad, parents, being able to nurture each other, it's just as important as possibly nurturing the child, especially if there is then this postpartum depression. I do that in the psychological counseling context, the clinical counseling context. I am offering nurturance, support, education, understanding, empathy. I want you to do it at home. Dads, fathers, husbands. Get involved. Do those things. Not husbands, then partners. Excuse me. Do those things. But at the same time, though, I would also want to suggest that the mother see that as not a failure of either herself or the child. The only thing that I don't know that, well, the only thing that did not go so readily with me, well with me, in the article, was that Alexander seemed to suggest that the child could be a problem. And I understand why he's saying that, but I'm going to be a bit more dismissive, and certainly for the sake of innocence, the child's, that is, maybe the mom's, the dad's as well. Uh, but they can't do anything, the child. It's all up to the parents. But if this thing is going to get calibrated, then the parents have got to do their part. And I'm just delineating and identifying the resource that's there. Extend that again to grandparents and aunts and uncles and <laughs> takes a village kind of thinking. Uh, and the good family support systems, that's all there. Isolation, blaming someone, putting the problem on someone. Well, you just need to fix yourself. Uh, that's not an answer. You can do some of that through medicines, but if you're 
actually breastfeeding the child, you've got to be careful because that too then can get into the child's body and can create problems, side effects, just like any medicine could create a side effect in an adult. If you're breastfeeding, then it's going to probably run the risk, potentially, of having an effect on the child. Even so, some of those medicines, while the child's in utero, it gets in the child's body, and we've learned that too, that serotonin reuptake inhibitors for a certain percentage, albeit, again, very small, prevalence is very limited and low, but it can have an effect on the child too, and call those generally birth defects. And that would presuppose that it was more organic or natural, which it is. But if you know better, like smoking, don't. If you know better, like alcohol, don't. If you know better that certain vitamins are really important to make sure that you, everything, maybe in your deficiency of diet or diet deficiencies, if your child's getting the best nutrition, do. All of that is prevention. We need to be interdisciplinary on this because it's all connected. Whatever we do as psychological counselors is going to then be all predicate upon the physiology. Everything is predicate foundationally upon physiology and physical functioning. Why would we not include that? But we also have to consider, as Alexander Danvers probably does, the social dimensions of that. We need to support. That's what we do. It's nobody's singular problem. And certainly if you're going to do the best you can in rearing a child these days, it's going to take everybody's participation, regardless of whatever the family constellation looks like, traditional or non-traditional. Everyone is involved. And should you require the psychological counselor, the psychological counselor needs to say the same thing. And medicine is probably not the only or best answer. All these other resources are important. All the research suggests the social dimension is important. But it's not just social, it has physiological basis. But if you get that nurturance and that support, you get the empathy, not just sympathy, but the empathy, if people understand where you're coming from, communication's better, it's a coordinated effort strategically to work together, not only overcome the postpartum depression, but it's all part of that Establishing that rhythm. And that really is what happens. Those couples that work together, that rhythm comes a little sooner. And once it comes, aren't you thankful? They're sleeping. They're not getting up all night. They're not fussy all the time. Or if they're fussy, you know what they need. You're better at it if it's your firstborn. If it's multiple kids that you've had, then by that point, you know. The second, third, whatever the number might be, you know. This is what they're really needing. You understand about the swaddling. You understand about that physical contact. You understand about, again, the social dimensions of support and love and nurturance. I want to remind folks of that so that I present a proper context when we're working together. <laughs> it might be that the mom carries the child. It might be that the mother, maternal, delivers the child. But nobody would argue that once the child's in the world, it's not the mom. It can't just be the mother. All of us have to participate. And I think it does make some 
sound sense. <laughs> if you get some of that in place preventatively, knowledge, everybody on the same page, working together before the child, it's probably going to then represent a better safety net that nobody falls through the cracks. Nobody gets lost. Nobody gets isolated. Nobody is left to continue in whatever mind or emotional state, physiological state they're in, to get more and more depressed. And then, what does that do, as the article suggests? Then that begins to have an influence on the child. And what does that do? It probably doesn't create the healthiest of not only adolescents, but adults. This is what we need to do from before birth. All of that matters. Who the individual is begins upon that point of conception, psychologically speaking, because all of this ties into self-labeling. Once they get that or attain that capacity to think of themselves in those terms, once the communication, the brain develops to the point of uh, being able to speak and talk about, conceptualize, learn, it's all part of forming who they are as individuals. So this is a social sort of psychology or psychological context that we're approaching today as a result of the article, the author kind of looking at it that way, or presuming he would. Uh, it still speaks to the individual within social context. And that's everything and everyone. You are an individual, but you have to function within a social context called society. If you come see somebody like me, that's exactly what we're going to be talking about. And don't be hesitant. Don't feel stigmatized. Don't be dismissive. <laughs> it's okay. Go talk to somebody. And don't just think, oh, well, you're just getting it off your chest. You're just talking. No, there's science behind all of this. It's, again, evidence-based. Sound scientific research methodology that went into the studies. And that's what we try to present with Psychology Today. Uh, why we use it as a reference creates a bit of a dialogue, too, between me and the author. And we can then begin to kind of talk it out as I then continue that dialogue with you. Conversation. Should you enjoy it, I want to invite you back. Should you need help, I do want to mention Psychology Today has a directory of providers. Check it out if you would want to reach out to someone. You can call us, 304-523-WORD, 9673. You can find us at Um You can email us. I leave the email address, too, on the platform, thewordhouseatfrontier.com. Uh, any of those ways, I'd be glad to do anything I can in any way I can to assist or help. One of the things, though, I am sure I can do is offer another edition of Word with Dave Clay. And that's going to be weekly. We do that weekly. So you're always invited back to catch our next episode uh, when we drop it, as they say. Uh, but in the meantime, until that happens, I do want to wish you the best of not only health, but mind health. <laughs> and I want to say thanks. <laughs>